Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. STIs do not receive the attention they require for excellent care in the ED. There are 20 million STIs identified each year in the United States alone. But this, I didn't know until recently, only 30% of patients are symptomatic. So that means what? That there's more than like 60 million people in the US alone with STIs every year. So if you've ever had sex, there's not an insignificant chance you've had an STI even if you've always used some kind of protection. It's no surprise then that there's an under-recognition of STIs in the ED. The question is, which STIs do we need to assess for and treat in the ED to improve outcomes? There's some recent trends in STI epidemiology that we really need to be aware of. There's syphilis, which is on the rise, which can be life-threatening, like a 58% mortality, I read in one source, when it's unrecognized and untreated. And there's an increasing recognition that mycoplasma genitalia is a cause of STIs and PID. In this part one of this two-part series on STI recognition and management in the ED, we'll talk about a general approach to cervicitis, vulvovaginitis, and urethritis, elucidate some key historical features, debate who needs a pelvic exam in the ED, understand who needs what testing when, debate self-swabs versus physician-taken swabs, dig into some specific organisms like mycoplasma genitalium, figure out who needs what kind of empiric treatment, sexual partner treatment, and what discharge instructions are key. And in part two, we're going to talk about PID, we're going to talk about genital lesions and ulcers like syphilis, LVG, and also some extra genital features of STIs like prostatitis and colitis. And to take us on the journey... We have the mighty return of my friend and neighbor, Dr. Catherine Varner, who recently gave a stellar talk at the EM Cases Summit. She's the deputy director at SREMI and clinician scientist at Sinai Health in Toronto. Welcome back, Dr. Varner. Awesome to be back, Anton. Thanks so much for having me. And new to EM Cases, you may have seen her give one of her fantastic talks at North York General's EMU Conference. My EM colleague and friend, a stellar all-around EM clinician, Dr. Robin Schaefer, welcome to EM Cases, Dr. Schaefer. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let's jump into a case. So a 25-year-old otherwise healthy female comes in with the chief complaint of foul-smelling discharge for three days. She has mild lower abdominal discomfort and dyspareunia. There's no fever, no urinary symptoms, except maybe some slight dysuria. Otherwise, she's feeling pretty well. She has two sexual partners one new uh, that she had sex with a few days ago without protection. She is taking an oral contraceptive and is on no other medications. She says she's never been diagnosed with an STI before and has never had any gynecologic issues otherwise. So let's start with the question of why ED providers should care about STIs in the first place. And I touched on this a little bit in the introduction that things like syphilis are on the rise Um, And when they're unrecognized and untreated, there's a high mortality rate. So that's one reason to care. But 
There's some docs who think that screening and even diagnosis of STIs should be relegated to primary care and not the emergency department. There's others who believe that the ED is the perfect place for screening for STIs and minimizing the burden of STIs in the community. So Dr. Varner, what's your take on the emergency medicine community's responsibility for screening for diagnosing and treating STIs? I think this is part of our wheelhouse. Uh, These patients are coming to our emergency department with symptoms. Uh, At times they are presenting specifically for screening if they've had a high-risk encounter. And I think that knowing how to counsel these patients, how to do proper physical exam on these patients, and how to screen and, and test is part of the role of an emergency physician. This is a really important conversation to have at this time, and it's it's in part because we've seen a rise, despite the pandemic, uh, we've seen a rise in chlamydia, gonorrhea, and I think most importantly, syphilis. And knowing that roughly one in six STIs will be diagnosed in an emergency department, and this is data that's out of the United States, and I suspect it's even higher in Canada And so being familiar with some of the changes that are taking place in the both diagnosis and management of STIs is part of our role, I think, right now. Dr. Schaefer, your take on why we should care about STIs in the ED or what our role is really with screening, diagnosis? I think in the ED, we really are in the situation where we have to care and treat for anyone who walks through our door. And knowing that many of those patients may not have access to primary care This may be the one opportunity we have to potentially diagnose, treat, screen, and counsel our patients. So this may be the one time in this patient's disease trajectory where we can make a difference and they may not seek care elsewhere. So it's really within our wheelhouse to be able to care for whoever comes to us for help. I want to talk about sort of a general approach to cervicitis and vulvovaginitis. We're going to lump together cervicitis and vulvovaginitis for the purpose of this discussion But just a bit of background first, these entities are everywhere because, like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, they can be symptomatic or asymptomatic. And amazingly, as many as 83% of cervicitis cases are of unknown etiology, so no pathogen is identified, and the cause often remains undetermined despite thorough investigation, and that's why counseling patients is so important. When we do identify a cause, then vulvovaginitis is most often caused by candida, bacterial vaginosis, BV, and or trichomoniasis. Cervicitis can also be caused by BV or trichomoniasis, but the common causes are chlamydia, gonorrhea, and mycoplasma genitalium. In the ED, it's usually impossible to know what organism is causing the patient's symptoms since clinical exam is inaccurate in this respect. So we need to have a reasonable approach. Let's talk about history first. So Dr. Varner, in our 25-year-old female with vaginal discharge, what, what are some of the key things on history we should be careful to cover? Uh, and why, why are those things important to elicit in the history? So for this patient, they're coming in with a very specific complaint. They're having vaginal discharge. And, and that's really where I start. So I want to hear from the patient when this vaginal discharge started. What does it smell like? Does it smell different? Um, what is the color? And what is the relationship with their menstrual cycle? And then when I go further with a sexual history, for this patient, the main question I have is, are you sexually active or not? And have you ever been sexually active? And if the patient 
is sexually active or has ever been sexually active, my pretest probability that this person has an STI is very high. And essentially, I don't need to have much more conversation about their sexual history from there. That would be different than a patient who's, say, coming in with an anogenital lesion, where I need to know more specifics about exactly what types of sexual practices that patient has. And so while there are very thorough suggestions about how we go about the history taking for this patient population that suggests we go through all of their recent partners, the types of sexual practices they have, whether or not they're having sex with men, women, both, or non-binary partners, or if they're using protection or not. For me, it's whether or not they're sexually active. If they are, then my pretest probability for this patient is high for an STI, and I'm going to test them and likely treat them from this point forward. I guess we can divide things into the person who presents with sort of classic cervicitis, vulvovaginitis, urethritis symptoms, and the person who has, say, their chief complaint is pelvic pain, and the person who has an anogenital lesion. Those are going to be pretty different histories. And there's one model called the five P's approach. If for whatever reason you do need to get a detailed history, So if there is someone with an anogenital lesion, the five Ps are partners, practices, protection from STIs, past history of STIs, and pregnancy prevention. We'll put a chart in the show notes to detail that. Some people find that taking a sexual history is a bit uncomfortable, and some patients find it very uncomfortable as well. So let's just go back and forth and talk about some sort of general communication tips for patients who present with a suspected STI. So we want to make sure that the patient is comfortable and will be willing to give us the answers to the questions that we have. So what are some communication tips? Let's start with you, Dr. Schaefer. So I think you touched on the most important point here is trying to make our patients as comfortable as possible. So number one would be picking the right setting. Now, it's obviously really difficult in the emergency department to find a private area in which to speak with our patients and certainly to examine them, but it's really important. I always try to find a room with a door that closes. We know that the curtains in the emergency department are not soundproof, uh, despite the mythology that we've all sort of convinced ourselves of, and you really don't want to start asking your patients about their sexual history when there's a curtain separating them from the, the next patient over who hears everything. I think the main principle is respect for our patients and communicating that respect, having a non-judgmental attitude. Basically, our patients need to understand that they can trust us. Otherwise, they might not be forthcoming with their history. They might not buy into the recommendations that we have for management. I would start with, in general, open-ended questions and use understandable language that really normalizes any behavior that we're asking about. You know, I often will tell patients why I'm asking the questions that I'm asking, just uh, such that they don't feel judged and that it gives some context to why it's important for me to know a bit more detail about what is a very personal history for them. And then something that I don't think has been touched on yet is that while somebody may be accompanying them to their visit, that person may not be welcomed by the patient in the room. And so I think creating an environment such that you can excuse, uh, say, a visitor from the room such that the patient can have a private conversation with you 
is something that's very important for all of your patients who are seeking care for concerns related to STIs. I want to move on to the physical exam. And the big question always comes up, who needs a pelvic exam? So there's this sort of age-old controversy when it comes to which patients require a pelvic exam in the emergency department. You know, on the one extreme, there's some docs who believe that a pelvic exam is almost never required in the ED with a tiny number of exceptions, like a retained foreign body, for example. And then on the other extreme, that every female with any unexplained symptoms below the umbilicus should have a pelvic exam done. Dr. Varner, what's your take on who needs a pelvic exam in the emergency department and why? Oh boy, Anton, I feel like I'm about to go on a rant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is I, you know, I feel like there has been a lot of utilization of the evidence in the wrong way. So you will often hear people say, oh, there's been this randomized trial that showed that doing a pelvic exam in the emergency department does not change your management. And if you look at those trials, they were done in ways that are not generalizable to the patients in our emergency departments. And in particular, this patient, they were done in settings where they were looking at the diagnostic accuracy for an adnexal mass. And I completely agree. I I never use a pelvic exam to diagnose a patient with an adnexal mass or characterize it. These studies were also done in pregnancy about whether or not patients with first trimester bleeding need a pelvic exam in the emergency department. And again, this is not the patient population in whom these trial results should be applied. And so we don't have good data to say whether or not we should be doing pelvic exams in the emergency department. And so I think that we need to go based on expert consensus. And expert consensus says that to make the diagnosis of, say, conditions like PID, we need to be doing pelvic exams in these patients, which can also facilitate testing to determine which microorganisms we're treating. I think that one of the reasons why a pelvic exam is important is because there's things like genital ulcers that a patient might not know about that you'll only find on the pelvic exam. And that will certainly change your management if you find an ulcer there as opposed to general cervicitis, for example. All right. So we've talked a little bit about what kind of history taking you want to do for the different kinds of patients you suspect might have an STI. We've talked about the importance of a pelvic exam. I want to talk about testing now and who needs testing. So there's all kinds of testing for STIs. There's urine testing, there's cervical swabs, there's vaginal swabs, there's blood work, there's the nucleic acid amplification testing or NAT. So even with within the swabs and the urine testing, there's all different kinds of tests you can do. It does get a little bit confusing. We'll get into the details of all of those in a minute, but let's start with who needs testing in general. Dr. Schaefer, who needs one or more of these tests in what kind of situations when it comes to STIs? If a patient has signs or symptoms that are consistent with a possible STI, that's definitely a situation where we would want to undergo specific testing, be it, you know, dysuria, rashes, abnormal lesions, rectal pain, or even pharyngitis. If the patient just outright requests STI testing or screening, I think it's reasonable to offer that to them. There is data to show that practitioners are really not that effective at predicting who does or does not have an STI. So quite a significant percentage of test-negative patients were treated empirically, whereas another quite a significant percentage of patients who tested positive for STIs were not actually given empiric treatment. So we're not very good at 
estimating who does or does not have an infection. So in cases where it's potentially a possibility based on the patient's symptoms or complaints, it's reasonable to test. All right. So while in some patients we might have a very high pretest probability, there is a large percentage of patients where they have very few symptoms, even asymptomatic. And so we have to be liberal with our testing. Unlike other screening programs or screening patients who may have either minimal symptoms or or asymptomatic, the risks of testing here are so low. And we know that as a healthcare community, we are missing, in some ways, the vast majority of STIs that are in our community, uh, certainly. So if it's crossing your mind, if you're pondering whether or not you should be testing this patient in the emergency department, then you probably should, provided that you and your, your group have a way to contact patients once the test results are available. Absolutely. And of course, if a patient's pregnant, that's almost a no-brainer because those patients all need to be tested. In terms of deciding when to test and who to test, there's talk about risk factors for STIs. How important are eliciting risk factors for STIs in the emergency department when we're trying to decide who to test and who not to test? I think as Dr. Varner mentioned, the most important risk factor is whether our patient is sexually active or has recently been sexually active. I don't think we, in most cases, need to get into the finer details of what their sexual practices are and how many partners they have, unless, again, as she mentioned, there are specific situations like anogenital lesions, and we need to find out if that patient practices receptive anal intercourse, which might put them at risk for specific STIs. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so I think it's similar discussion we had with the history taking that Really, it just comes down to having a low threshold to think about STIs, to ask about STIs, and to test for STIs. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you, whether it's your partner, your kids, your friends, your colleagues, or your patients who need your help. But Never take time to think about what you need from yourself. The problem is that when we spend all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling a bit stretched thin and burnt out. The talk therapy that BetterHelp offers can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. Defining your goals and setting boundaries with others has huge potential benefit to you and your mental health. BetterHelp offers easy access, convenient, and flexible online therapy. Simply fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash emcases today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash E-M cases. Like I was explaining earlier, there's many organisms that may be the culprit in STIs. And even though we rarely know the cause of the STI in the ED, I think it's important to understand some of the key features and treatments so that we have a better understanding of the breadth of infections and how to manage these patients. So what I'd like to do now is give each of you a turn quickly to tell me the most important things we need to know about each bug that causes vulvovaginitis, cervicitis, and urethritis. 
So again, we'll, we'll cover the classic vulvovaginitis bugs. That's BV, bacterial vaginosis, trichomoniasis, and candidiasis. And the classic cervicitis bugs, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and mycoplasma genitalium. That's the bug that I previously personally knew very little about, so maybe we'll spend a little bit more time on that one. So here we go. Let's start with bacterial vaginosis. Dr. Varner, what do we need to know about bacterial vaginosis? So first, I, would, I wouldn't characterize uh, bacterial vaginosis as a STI, and I know we're covering it as part of uh, causes of vulvovaginitis or cervicitis, but um, this is something. This is a bug that is more frequent in patients that have multiple sexual partners, but it, it, in, it is in itself by definition not an STI. And um, but about thirty percent of of women will have BV, and only fifty percent are going to be symptomatic. So the question is, when you test and you find a patient has bacterial vaginosis, is this the cause of their symptoms? Is is sometimes the question that I'm asking when I'm looking at a test result after the patient is no longer in the department. If a patient has symptoms of bacterial vaginosis, then their symptoms are going to be generally a change in the discharge and the characteristic of the discharge. The odor will be different. Some people describe a fishy odor, or there'll be more discharge or the color has changed. And what I think as emergency department providers we should be most aware of related to BV is that if BV is found in a pregnant patient, it does put them at higher risk of later-term complications related to pregnancy, so premature rupture of membranes, postpartum endometritis, and preterm birth. So just to clarify, BV is not technically an STI. However, people who have risk factors for STIs are more likely to have BV, so we should consider it in patients who are thinking about STI, right? Correct. That's how I look at it. And the way I would explain it to a patient when I'm making the diagnosis of bacterial vaginosis is that it's from the natural bacteria that live in the vagina that have somehow become out of balance and thus caused their symptoms and this discharge to change. So it's not necessarily an infection that they got from a partner, but the very act of being sexually active somehow changes this bacterial flora in the vagina, which makes patients prone to bacterial vaginosis. All right. Good to know. And like STIs, bacterial vaginosis, as you're explaining, Dr. Varner, can lead to long-term complications, which is why it's important to identify and treat. What about pH testing for BV? Or there's the uh, WIF test that we all learned about in medical school. I can't remember the last time I tested for pH or a whiff test. Is there any role for a pH or a whiff test for BV, or should we be sending all of these for gram stain and culture, Dr. Varner? In BV, the pH is elevated uh, with either BV, actually, or trichomonas. But unfortunately, pH testing is not highly specific. And so it doesn't seem to add that much to the assessment and diagnosis of patients in the emergency department, particularly if they're coming in with these undifferentiated symptoms. And so the recommendation is that these patients should have gram stain and culture, so vaginal swabs. Okay. Well, that simplifies things. We're going to be doing vaginal swabs anyways, and just make sure you send it off for gram stain and culture because that'll pick up BV. And if we're treating empirically, which we'll get to later, we'll probably be covering for BV anyhow. Dr. Varner, just quickly, the treatment for BV? So the first line treatment is metronidazole, two grams just once, or you can lengthen it out, 500 milligrams POBID for seven days. And there's no role in treating the partner in this case. 
Okay. So I would imagine that for the patient who you think might have trouble getting a week-long course of metronidazole, you'll probably elect to just give them the two grams in the emergency department. That seems like the simplest thing to do. Okay, great. So that's all about BV. Let's move on to trichomoniasis. Dr. Schaefer, what are the key things to know about trichomoniasis? So number one, it's very common. It's the most prevalent non-viral STI worldwide. And the majority of people who have trichomoniasis, up to over 80%, either have minimal or no genital symptoms. So patients might have untreated infections for months or even years that are getting you know, passed along to their sexual partners. It's important to recognize and to diagnose because it does have some significant sequelae for the patient's health. It puts patients at risk for preterm birth and for having small gestational age infants. It's a risk factor for developing cervical cancer. Patients with trichomoniasis are at risk, at higher risk for HIV acquisition. And patients with trichomoniasis and concomitant HIV infection have higher rates of HIV viral shedding, which actually decrease with treatment of the trichomonas vaginalis, even in the absence of antiretroviral treatment. And of course, trichomoniasis also puts patients at risk for pelvic inflammatory disease. In terms of the presentation, in men, presentations can include urethritis, epididymitis, prostatitis, and in females, presentations can include vaginal discharge. And on pelvic exam, you might find what's been described as a strawberry-appearing cervix. In terms of diagnosis, the best test is the NAT, nucleic acid amplification test, or more commonly referred to as a PCR test. All right. So... With trichomoniasis, it's like a lot of these other STIs. Lots of people can be asymptomatic. If you don't identify and treat it, it can lead to all kinds of long-term complications. And again, the best test is a NAT or PCR swab or urine. And then in terms of the treatment for trichomoniasis, is it the same as BV? Yeah, it's pretty handy. It's the same treatment as for bacterial vaginosis. So first-line treatment would be metronidazole 2 grams PO as a one-time dose or the 500 milligrams BID for seven days. There is some thought that for trichomoniasis, the seven-day treatment may be a little bit more effective. But as we said, in patients who can't access the seven-day course, who might not be reliable for continuing their treatment, who can't get access to the medication, the one-time dose might be more appropriate. This is a situation where we do recommend retesting one to three months later and it is recommended to treat sexual partners of patients with this infection. Okay, so so far with BV, it's not really an STI, and it can lead to all kinds of long-term complications. Treat with metronidazole, two grams once, or 500 milligrams BID for seven days. The treatment is the same with trichomoniasis, except that trichomoniasis is an STI, can also lead to all sorts of long-term complications, and... With trichomoniasis, we want to be sure that they get follow-up and retesting. All right, let's move on to candidiasis then. Dr. Varner, key things to know about candidiasis? So one of the characteristic symptoms of candidiasis is pruritus. Doing a vaginal exam, you'll see the characteristic vaginal discharge, which looks sort of curdy in appearance. People describe it almost like a cottage cheesy appearance. And some patients will have more severe symptoms, including dysuria or dyspareunia. And the treatments are fairly simple. You can take one dose of fluconazole PO 
or if patients prefer, can do vaginal suppositories that are either pills or medication that's like a foam type suppository of clotrimazole. I think it's an important principle to understand that we were saying before, it's very difficult to know exactly what the cause of the cervicitis or vulvovaginitis is. And that while candidiasis, for example, has the typical appearance of that cottage cheese-like discharge, that we have to be careful not to assume that it's candidiasis and that we still need to test and think about the other STIs. I completely agree with that. I have seen on several occasions where patients have uh, both candidiasis and an additional STI that needs treatment. So I guess the classic bias of premature closure applies to candidiasis, that if you have someone with classic candidiasis, you still need to search for other STIs for sure. I think that applies for all of the STIs. Having one STI is really a biomarker for other STIs because they're transmitted the same way. So we really need to be open to testing for a variety of STIs. Okay. So, so far we've covered the three common causes of vulvovaginitis. Uh, That's BV, trichomoniasis, and candidiasis, which have slight differences that are important to know. Let's move on to the common causes of cervicitis and urethritis. That's gonorrhea, chlamydia, and mycoplasma genitalium. And again, we'll just go back and forth with some quick pearls on each one. So Dr. Schaefer, gonorrhea. So gonorrhea is the most common cause of urethritis. About 30% of males with urethritis have gonorrhea. The rates of infection with gonorrhea are increasing in Canada, and now it's most prevalent among adolescents and young adults. In terms of the clinical presentation, In men, usually they present with urethral symptoms, often with a a frankly purulent urethral discharge and dysuria, and and that usually causes them to seek treatment before they develop any more serious sequelae, but not often before they've passed it on to sexual partners. In women, often the infection can be asymptomatic until they get complications like PID, which, as we're going to talk about, has some more significant potential consequences health-wise. Some patients can carry asymptomatic infections, specifically in the pharynx, and that may contribute to ongoing community transmission. All right, so that's a great little background for gonorrhea. My understanding is that gonorrhea is one of the most drug-resistant bacterial diseases in the world, and recent treatment guidelines have changed because of this. Can you just update us on the latest for the treatment of gonorrhea? Sure. So there are some differences depending on which set of guidelines you follow. In general, they all recommend treating with a third-generation cephalosporin, plus or minus considering dual treatment with something like azithromycin or doxycycline. So in terms of the cephalosporin, the Centers for Disease Control recommend ceftriaxone 500 milligrams intramuscularly, which is an increase from their previous dose of 250 milligrams, again, to try to address the issue of increasing drug resistance. If our patients are of larger body habitus, greater than 150 kilograms, then we should increase our dose of ceftriaxone further to one gram. And whereas the CDC used to endorse dual treatment of gonorrhea with the addition of azithromycin, concerns about harming the microbiome have led to striking that recommendation. So they recommend just treatment with the ceftriaxone, whereas the Canadian guidelines still recommend dual treatment. So Health Canada recommends azithromycin, one gram PO as a one-time dose, or doxycycline, 
100 milligrams BID for seven days. So it's really hard to keep up with how quickly all of this is changing. And so how I keep up with it is I have two apps on my phone. One is from the CDC, which has all of the complete and uh, maintained guidelines for treatment for STIs. So it's the CDC STI app. And then PHAC also has um, an STI treatment guide that is available as an app- application on, on your phone. And so particularly for multidrug-resistant gonorrhea on the rise, uh, when I ha- have a patient who am I treating, I pull out my app and figure out which one I use. Perfect. Very easy. Practical tip there. Excellent. So that's a bit about gonorrhea. Let's move on to chlamydia. Dr. Varner, what do we need to know about chlamydia? I tell my young patients, so anyone between the ages of 19 and 25, that chlamydia is everywhere. And I think we should be suspecting it in anyone who's coming in with urethritis, cervicitis, epididymitis, and even we should start thinking about it in patients coming in with conjunctivitis. And for patients who have symptoms of cervicitis or urethritis, these are patients whom we're, we're treating before waiting for their test results. And the first-line treatment for chlamydia, now when we know the diagnosis, is doxycycline 100 milligrams POBID for seven days. And um, we know that there are fewer treatment failures using doxycycline than for azithromycin, which has been our historic medication that we use to treat chlamydia. But if we have a patient who has confirmed chlamydia, the guidance now is doxycycline 100 milligrams POBID for seven days. Okay. And then Empiric treatment, which we'll get to later, I'm assuming if you don't know if it's GC or chlamydia, at least for those two bugs, you're giving ceftriaxone, probably at least 500 IM or IV, plus doxycycline, 100 POBID for seven days, yeah? That's correct. All right. And Dr. Varner, mycoplasma genitalium, uh, and I have to admit, it hasn't really been on my radar until I started preparing for this podcast. Why is mycoplasma genitalium important to know about? And just tell us a little bit about what we need to know about it and and why for the emergency department. Well, it is such a sneaky bug. And it's in those patients, and I'm sure you've seen them before, where you were 100% convinced that their urethritis was caused by gonorrhea or chlamydia, and then you went back to their chart a few days later and both of them were negative. You may have missed mycoplasma genitalium. It is a cause of patients who have urethritis and are culture negative for gonorrhea or chlamydia, and they say it can be up to as high as 20% of the time. And so it's something that we're learning, I think, more about, but it has also been associated with cervicitis, PIT, preterm delivery in pregnant patients, uh, spontaneous abortion, and even infertility. So it's something that we should be keeping in mind. It should be considered in patients in whom you have treatment refractory, urethritis or cervicitis, or patients who have, say, recurrent PID symptoms. Okay, excellent. So we need to think about this bug for patients who aren't getting better with the usual treatments for GC or chlamydia, or if they're GC chlamydia negative and they're still having symptoms, if they're having persistent urethritis because like GC and chlamydia, the mycoplasma genitalium can lead to PID, it can lead to infertility, and all kinds of chronic problems. So do we need to be testing for mycoplasma genitalium routinely when we see a patient with STI symptoms, or when should we be testing for it? I would specifically test for it in exactly the patient that we just described, a patient that has had 
recurrent or persistent symptoms of urethritis, cervicitis, or pelvic inflammatory disease, especially if they've already recently been treated for gonorrhea chlamydia or if they have a negative test for gonorrhea and chlamydia. In those patients, I'd be starting to suspect mycoplasma genitalium as the etiology of their condition, and I'd want to test them specifically. Okay. And what test would you be sending for? So there is an approved PCR or NAAT test for mycoplasma genitalium. Culture is also a possibility, but apparently cultures take something like six months to come back. So in cases where you're worried about resistance, you could also send off a culture, but knowing that the result of that culture won't come back for a very long time. So you'll want to send off a PCR test for sure. And then if you do get a test that comes back positive for mycoplasma genitalium, uh, what's the treatment for it, Dr. Varner? So for a macrolide-sensitive organism, it's doxycycline, 100 milligrams POBID for seven days, followed by a day of azithromycin, one gram orally for one dose, and then 500 milligrams orally for one dose for three additional days. Now, if it's macrolide resistant, then it's uh, exchanging the azithromycin for moxifloxacin, 400 milligrams orally once daily for seven days, in addition to the doxycycline, 100 milligrams POBID for seven days. So you can see how the, the treatment is different than chlamydia and why these patients would get recurrent symptoms um, if they were just treated with chlamydia or gonorrhea in mind. Okay. So practically speaking, we just have to be aware that mycoplasma genitalium does require a different treatment and that we need to be thinking about it in patients with recurrent symptoms who aren't getting better. We should test for it. And then if we do get the test back, we should look up the treatment, which is a little bit complicated, but involves doxy plus azithro or doxy plus moxifloxacin. Just a reminder that access to purchasing your own streaming package of all the talks, panel discussions, rants, and procedural videos from EM Cases Summit 2023 and 2021 is closing on May 31st. So if you haven't already had your mind blown by the amazing library of talks from the biggest independent virtual EM conference in the world already, now's your chance. Get your streaming package through emcasesummit.com. So that's not the main EM Cases website. That's emcasesummit.com. You can claim your full main pro CME points there, and you'll be helping support us so that we can continue to give you all the EM Cases free open access stuff like this podcast, the show notes, the quiz vault, the email blast, etc. So please head on over to emcasesummit.com for your streaming package. One somewhat controversial question is whether docs need to perform cervical swabs or if patient-performed swabs or what they call self-swabs are adequate. On the one hand, as we were discussing before, these patients should get a pelvic exam. So if you're doing the pelvic exam, why not just do the swabs at the same time? On the other hand, uh, patients may be more comfortable doing the swabs themselves. And I understand that the evidence for self-swabs is actually very good compared to a physician-done swab. Dr. Varner, first, what's the evidence for self-swabs and are self-swabs an option that we should consider in the ED? So this was a question that, that obviously became really popular in the early 2010s because they ran a bunch of randomized trials that answered that tried to answer this question in different populations. So 
in sexual health clinics and uh, clinics that looked at and served specific populations, so men who have sex with men, and then also looked at whether or not there was different diagnostic accuracy between the different types of tests that were done. And so all of that hard work took place in the early 2010s, and they quite conclusively determined that patients are very capable at doing their own self-swabs, they're comfortable at doing their, their swabs, and the diagnostic accuracy is no different. And so it seems to be that we have quite a definitive answer that patients can do their own swabs and and we can be reassured that those test results are just as good as if the physician does the swabs themselves. All right. I want to kind of put all this lab testing together for vulvovaginitis, cervicitis, urethritis, because it's pretty confusing. Still, I find, you know, whether you need to do urine tests, swabs, both. Are you ordering cultures? Are you ordering PCR or not? Putting it all together, you know, on the one hand, all departments should have sort of an STI screening protocol so that it's very easy just to tick off the boxes that uh, that you want. But just so that we know what the best way of sending these tests, what tests are we actually sending off for, let's just say in the patient with run-of-the-mill cervicitis or urethritis. Dr. Schaefer, could you kind of review for us what lab testing we should be setting off for? So we should be sending a test for gonorrhea and chlamydia in the form of a, a NAT test or a PCR test, which can be a swab or a urine test. We should be sending uh, gram stain and culture and sensitivity swabs of the vagina. And we should be sending specifically a swab for gonorrhea culture and sensitivity if there's the clinical concern for antimicrobial resistant gonorrhea, which as we know is emerging. So if they've had recurrent gonorrhea or ongoing symptoms despite treatment, and if they have recurrent cervicitis or PID or urethritis symptoms, we should consider also sending off a swab for PCR for mycoplasma. And in addition, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, consider other STI testing as well. That's a great review of the testing that you'd consider in a patient with vulvovaginitis, cervicitis, urethritis. The question always comes up in the male patients of whether a urine test or a swab is the best way to go because many male patients find getting a urethral swab very uncomfortable. And it would be wonderful if we could just order urines on everyone. It would be much easier. Dr. Varner, any wisdom as to penile testing? For urethritis, which patients just need urine sent and which patients need a swab and for what? I think our male patients will be happy to know that urine gnats have excellent diagnostic accuracy for diagnosing gonorrhea and chlamydia. But there are some important things to realize that we should consider doing cultures of the urethra particularly if we suspect that the patient is at risk of multidrug-resistant gonorrhea, for instance, say in a patient who has engaged in sexual activity while they were traveling, I think that's a, a big risk factor, or if we suspect that a treatment failure has already occurred, those patients need a swab. And I think that as over time we see more multidrug-resistant gonorrhea, I think that, that these guidelines will, will start changing as well and will be more encouraging of doing culture and swabs on these patients. And so in certain patient populations, you're going to be doing both. With regards to testing, Dr. Schaefer nicely covered for your run-of-the-mill vulvovaginitis cervicitis, what we would send for. 
and we've covered what we would send for for urethritis in men. What about rectal and pharyngeal testing? So which patients do we need to send swabs off for uh, pharyngeal swab or a rectal swab for? So certainly in patients who have signs or symptoms of rectal or pharyngeal infection, those patients should have rectal and pharyngeal NAT testing. And then there are going to be other populations that you might consider doing this testing in. So men who have sex with men, those who engage in sex work or in regular sexual contact with someone who engages in sex work or a sexual contact of someone who has been confirmed as having gonorrhea and or chlamydia. Okay. So this is where the more specific questions about the sexual history come in are when we're talking about rectal and pharyngeal symptoms that may be associated with an STI. Exactly. So that's a little bit about all the different common STI bugs and their treatments and what tests we should be sending off for. I want to talk a little bit more about empiric treatment and when we should treat empirically. So the problem is this. If we have a very, very low threshold to treat empirically, then theoretically at least that would lead to worsening multidrug-resistant gonorrhea, for example. On the other hand, if we don't have a low threshold to treat empirically, then we could be missing a lot of these STIs, which can lead to long-term complications, PID, infertility, etc., So this is not an easy question to ask. Dr. Varner, what's your threshold for treating STIs empirically in the emergency department? So I think you have to look at the patient that's sitting in front of you to determine whether or not you need to treat empirically. But also remembering that the patients presenting to the emergency department with new vaginal discharge or urethritis type symptoms, those patients have a high risk of having an STI. So upwards of a third of those patients will test positive for chlamydia or gonorrhea. And so my index of suspicion that this patient has an STI or my pretest probability is already very high. And in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2021, there was a discussion paper about this exact issue of whether or not we should be empirically treating all of these patients that come in with symptoms of STI. And the authors of this paper strongly advocate that, yes, the pretest probability in this population is so high that it outweighs the risks of empiric treatment, and we should be empirically treating these patients that are coming in with symptoms of STIs in the emergency department setting. Okay, fair enough. So that that sounds like it covers the patients who you have a pretty good pretest probability that the patient has an STI. But then there's the patients that come in with, say, just some mild pelvic pain that's been going on for a few days and there's no obvious explanation. If we treated all of those patients empirically, we need to think about the cost, the side effects, and multidrug-resistant bugs. Dr. Schaefer, what kind of factors do you consider when you're trying to decide whether to treat empirically? So there are some patient-related factors that would make me more inclined to treat empirically. Certainly, if they have more significant symptoms, if I'm worried about a more significant clinical presentation, more severe presentation, I may be inclined to empirically treat. If the patient has the potential for future greater risk of sequelae from an STI, such as they're pregnant and we're worried about risk of preterm labor or small for gestational age infant, or the patient wishes to become pregnant and we have concerns for possible future fertility issues of an untreated STI, that might sway me towards empiric treatment. 
as opposed to, let's say, if it's an older patient who doesn't have future fertility concerns or you know is not pregnant, it may be reasonable rather than empirically treating to wait for results of testing. I think considering the patient's access to follow-up and the likelihood of them going for clinical follow-up is really important. So if this is a patient that doesn't have a primary care physician or is not likely to follow up for this particular complaint, it may be more practical and more helpful just to empirically treat them for an STI if there is plausible reason to suspect it. And as with everything we do in medicine, it really does come down to shared decision-making with our patients. So going over with our patients, my thought process for you know why I think it may be important to treat this if it is in fact an STI, these are the possible consequences it may have to them, to their bodies, to their fertility, why it might be important to treat it early, or asking them what their access is to follow up, how likely they are to be able to follow up if we don't treat empirically to follow up the results of the tests and potentially get retested. Okay, fantastic. So we want to think about the severity of the clinical condition. We want to think about the probability of an infection in the first place. We want to think about the risk factors, think about their access to follow-up, their age, their potential to be pregnant, if they are pregnant. These are all factors that we need to consider. Unfortunately, there's no D-dimer for treating empirically for STIs in the emergency department. Come practice family medicine in rural Alberta and receive incentives of up to $120,000. Enjoy lower house prices and abundant outdoor experiences. It's called the Reside Program. If you're a family physician who has been in practice for five years or less, see if you qualify for the Reside Program. Go to rpap.ca slash reside. That's r-h-p-a-p dot c-a forward slash r-e-s-i-d-e. That's r-h-p-a-p dot c-a forward slash reside. Dr. Schoeffer, you had touched on what other screening tests to do for the patient who you've diagnosed with cervicitis or vulvovaginitis or urethritis. I want to talk a little bit about that some more. As we mentioned, syphilis is on the rise. There's HIV, there's hepatitis, there's all kinds of other testing that these patients may need. If you have confirmed the diagnosis of an STI in the emergency department, let's say clinically, what other tests should you consider getting in the emergency department? What other tests should you consider just telling the patient to follow up with their primary care physician to get? So that's an important question. Obviously, we have to recognize that all the different STIs share the same mode of acquisition or transmission. If a sexually active patient has one STI, they're at risk for other ones. So I think for any patient with a confirmed or presumptive diagnosis of an STI, they should be tested for HIV, syphilis, and hepatitis, in addition to gonorrhea, chlamydia, and other organisms that you're specifically, specifically thinking of. But in terms of whether that testing should occur in the emergency department versus some other outpatient setting really comes down to how well your emergency department is set up for follow-up of these tests how easily the patient can access other testing as an outpatient with their family doctor or with a sexual health clinic. So that will really depend on where you work and depend on the patient themselves and their situation. So that's going to come into your discharge instructions if you do decide to have the patient tested in an outpatient setting for those things. What other things on your discharge are you counseling patients about? So one of the main questions our patients have is, what do I tell my partner? And providing them specific 
guidance about how to have a conversation with, with their partner is really important and I think appreciated by patients. So the first is specifically how should they engage with sexual contact with their partner going forward. And we should be telling them to abstain from sexual intercourse for the duration of the seven-day treatment with doxycycline or if it's a of the one-day treatment, a single-dose therapy, then we, they still need to abstain from intercourse for seven days and until symptoms have resolved. And all of the sexual partners whom the patient has had contact within 60 days of also need to be treated. And we can talk a little bit more about, you know, how those those partners should get treated depending on on what we're treating. But the patient partners also need to be contacted if they had a sexual intercourse within 60 days of symptom onset or the positive test result. All right. Yeah, I do want to talk a little bit more about treating the partners I understand that in some jurisdictions, there's support for testing partners and that from a privacy standpoint, that there's really no issues. Whereas in other jurisdictions, there's some privacy issues and you don't have support for treating the partners directly. So it's a little bit trickier. So wherever you work, you need to find out what your policies are around treating partners. In our setting uh, in Ontario, or maybe you could talk about Canada in general, what is our responsibility? What are the privacy issues? What's the process in terms of treating sexual partners of patients with STIs? So I can give you the example of what Toronto Public Health provides. And even they acknowledge that this is a changing space, but for it's called expedited partner therapy. And it's in hopes to treat partners in a very low barrier way. And the lowest barrier way is to hand the patient in front of you a prescription for the partner to be treated. And their guidance for what's called this expedited partner therapy is only recommended for chlamydia. And so in patients whom you have diagnosed chlamydia, the guidance in Toronto says that you as the provider can treat the partner without seeing them as a patient and you can hand the patient a prescription for uh, the treatment of chlamydia. They do not advise this for the treatment of gonorrhea. And it's because of our concern about multi-drug resistance. And technically, you know, STIs are all reportable conditions. Now, the reality is, is reporting every case of chlamydia is impractical. However, this is a very different conversation than if you diagnose someone with syphilis or HIV in your emergency department. And in engaging your public health early in those diagnoses is really helpful and important. Okay. So there's a lot of things we need to think about when we're discharging these patients, what kind of additional testing they might need if it's not done in the emergency department. We have to think about treating their partner and giving them a prescription for their partner if that's something that's allowed in your jurisdiction. We need to counsel them about safe sex and the seven days of abstinence, as well as understanding that all sexual partners within 60 days of the most recent should be referred for evaluation, even if they're asymptomatic. The other responsibility we have is to report things like syphilis and HIV to public health. Again, that might change depending on what jurisdiction you're in, and you should find out what is reportable and what's not. So what I wish for our place and for every place uh, in North America is that there is a very easy checklist in your EMR to go through for discharging patients with STI because these things are sometimes easy to forget in a busy emergency shift. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, that brings us near the end of part one of our two-part series on STIs. Uh, hope you learned a little something about cervicitis, vulvovaginitis, uh, urethritis, the general approach to these things, some key concepts in the, the history, tips on communication, who needs a pelvic exam, a little bit about testing, what we really need to know about the specific organisms, including mycoplasma genitalium, the empiric treatment, and the importance of good discharge instructions and partner treatment. In part two, we're going to talk about the sometimes elusive pelvic inflammatory disease, PID. We're going to fly through various genital lesions like ulcers and such that we should be able to identify in the ED, which if we do identify can sometimes be life-saving. And then talk about STI manifestations outside the genitals like proctitis, colitis, and finally drive it home with some of the key take-home pearls and pitfalls from both parts one and two. So thank you so much, Dr. Schaefer and Dr. Varner, for your insights into the wonderful world of STIs. We'll see you in part two. Thanks so much, Anton. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 